0: Welcome to our podcast series discussing treatment-related adverse events within fortumabvidotin in the management of urothelial carcinoma. This third episode on the management of neuropathy is hosted by Dr. Shrikala Sridhar, professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto and a genitourinary medical oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. In this episode, Dr. Sridhar interviews Dr. Warren Mason, a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, and a neuro-oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, my name is Dr. Kala Sridhar. I'm a medical oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center, head of the GU Psych Group. And I'm very pleased to be here with my friend and colleague, Dr. Warren Mason. I'll get Dr. Mason to introduce himself for you today.
1: Thank you, Carla. My my name is Warren Mason. I am a neuro-oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center as well. And my focus has been on the treatment of primary brain tumors, but I'm also a neurologist. And I do have an interest in complications, neurologic complications of cancer and the treatment of cancer.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Warren. Thank you for being here. And indeed, we've shared a lot of patients over the years who run into issues with neuropathy or other problems related to the treatments that we give them. So I think it'll be a really interesting chat with you today about what we see and perhaps some tips around how we manage it. We're going to focus really on inflortimab which many of you will know is one of our new agents in the management of metastatic urothelial carcinoma. It's an antibody drug conjugate where you have a target to nectin, which is highly expressed in urothelial carcinomas a linker molecule, and then the chemotherapy, which is something called MMAE. And this is a drug that targets microtubules similar to the taxanes, which is a slightly older drug, but one that we still use from time to time in this disease. So today we're really going to focus on the infortimab-vidotin drug itself and some of the data that led to its approval in the management of advanced urethelial carcinoma. So this was a study looking in the third-line setting in this disease, which in itself is very exciting, and it highlights some of the advances we've made over the years. Nonetheless, frontline treatment for metastatic urothelial carcinoma consists of platinum-based chemotherapy. We tend to use a lot of gemcitabine and cisplatin. This is often followed by maintenance immunotherapy with a drug called Avelumab. That's in patients who have stable disease, partial response, or a complete response in patients on the other hand who have disease progression on or after frontline chemotherapy we go to another immunotherapy known as pembrolizumab so frontline is a platinum based agent second line or maintenance is usually an immunotherapy so beyond that until recently we really didn't have much to do much to do in terms of treatment for our patients until the introduction of the vedotin so this was a phase three study, which compared infortimab vedotin against third-line chemotherapy agents, which usually were things like docetaxel, paclitaxel, or vinflunine. And what we all saw when the data was presented was that there was a benefit in terms of overall survival in the vedotin, or EV for short, and the survival there was 12.9 months compared to about nine months for chemotherapy. So this translated into about a 30% reduction in the risk of death with EV versus chemotherapy. In total, there were 608 patients on this study. Hazard ratio was 0.70. The 95% confidence interval was 0.56 to 0.89. And the p-value was 0.001. So on the basis of this data, infortimab-vidotin was approved in the third-line setting in metastatic urethelial carcinoma and has added to the armamentarium of drugs that we have to manage this disease. We also now have some long-term results in terms of overall survival. Of the 608 patients, 301 were, of course, randomized to EV, 307 were randomized to chemotherapy. And as of July 30th, 2021, a total of 444 deaths had occurred. EV arm had 207, and the chemotherapy arm had 237. And now with a median follow-up of 23.75 months, median overall survival was prolonged by 3.97 months with EV compared with chemotherapy, and the hazard ratio there was 0.704, a one-sided p-value of 0.00015. So all of this is just to say that this is an important drug in the management of metastatic urothelial carcinoma. Now, some of the treatment-related adverse event is peripheral sensory neuropathy. And when we look in the study, in 296 patients on the EV arm, 291 on the chemotherapy arm, any grade toxicity came in at around 35%. This is in the EV arm. Grade 3 or greater was about 5%. At the same time, the chemotherapy group, Any grade toxicity was 21.6% and grade greater than 3 toxicity was 2.1%. I'm going to stop there for a moment and bring in Warren to give us some comments about what he thinks about peripheral sensory neuropathy in the context of bladder cancer and perhaps in the context of these agents.
1: Warren? Right. So as you know, I've seen a number of your patients over the years, and historically it's been patients who've had chemotherapies, the conventional chemotherapies, the taxanes, and cisplatin. The toxicities of these drugs are often a neuropathy, with cisplatin, there's often a large private sensory neuropathy, and this can involve, you know, difficulties with sensation in the feet, in particular problems with walking from a sensory ataxia. With the taxanes, we've noticed more complex neuropathies with the involvement, not just of sensory dysfunction, but also motor dysfunction. So there's weakness as well. There's also quite a bit of pain involved with the taxanes. With cisplatin, we don't see as much pain, it's more a sensation of numbness that they experience. With EV, these patients have all been heavily treated and they've had exposure to other neurotoxic chemotherapies before starting this agent. So many of them have had damage to their nerves prior to starting this agent. But in the few patients I've seen who've had bad neuropathy from EV, it's been predominantly sensory, and it has involved a significant disability in terms of functioning for this reason with walking, but also with using uh, the upper extremities for daily activities of living and stuff.
0: Right, exactly. You're right. We have shared a number of patients and, uh, you know, they they do have a number of insults to their nerves, starting often with platinum, even in the pre-metastatic, in the muscle invasive setting. And then we treat them again in the metastatic setting. And then of course, a number of these agents can contribute to ongoing neuropathy. The patient population that we look at who have advanced bladder cancer also tend to be a little bit older. Average age is about 72 or so. Many of them are smokers, so not all of them. And they have a number of other comorbidities as well, such as, for example, hypertension or diabetes. And I'm curious to know how these factors may additionally contribute to the risk of neuropathy with these agents.
1: So all of these are comorbidities that do contribute to the development of neuropathy. Certainly age is a factor, and as people age, their nerves age as well, and you can develop a kind of mild neuropathy associated with that, just as background. Also, the nerves are older, so they don't respond to insults and stress as well as a younger nerve, and their capacity to regenerate, to repair damage is also diminished. So age is a major factor, and of course, you've mentioned uh, other things such as diabetes and hypertension, you know, these are contributing factors to uh, neuropathy as well and can exacerbate what we see when, when they're treated with the agents.
0: Fair, fair. And then I guess my next question is, when we do send patients to you, what kind of evaluations do you do on them? What kind of testing do you do to make this diagnosis predominantly clinical only, or is there specific tests that are done?
1: Right. So when we see these patients, there's a detailed neurologic examination with a focus on the peripheral nervous system. Many of these patients will have evidence of, of no damage that can be mild to to severe. And depending on the agents involved, it can be sensory, motor, or motor sensory. After the, the clinical examination, we always, you know, discuss the impact of the deficits on life, how it's impairing with their normal activities. Also, if there's pain, some patients have pain, others have less pain. We also need to emphasize that when the patients who complain of numbness, there's actually really no agent that we can use to reverse that negative symptom. Other things that we will do is sometimes involve physiotherapy and occupational therapy to uh, you know, assist them coping with the deficits that they have in their home and workplace. And, and then finally, we discuss the role of uh, electrodiagnostic studies, so EMGs and nerve conduction studies, to document the extent of damage and also to serve as a baseline for uh, assessments later, uh, when, you know, as time passes, if there is recovery, the extent of recovery, we can repeat nerve conduction studies in six months or 12 months. We don't always do that uh, because the clinical examination is often sufficient to give us an idea of how severe the, the neuropathy is.
0: Great. Perfect. Okay. So let's move on a little bit. So of course, this drug EV has shown good efficacy and to a large extent tolerability in quite a heavily pretreated patient population now we're starting to see combination studies happening with this drug as well this is the EV103 cohort K study i'm referring to which looked at EV plus pembrolizumab together so combining these two agents and this showed an objective response rate of about 65% or so and so this again is a really really exciting number for us i mean It's starting to challenge what we've seen with platinum based chemotherapy. Um, And I think this has real potential to move forwards in this disease. Um, And it's really being evaluated in the frontline metastatic setting. So, one of the things, of course, that we may not know so well yet is how these patients do in the long term. Because, of course, if we're treating them in the third line setting, then unfortunately, outcomes are not so great. But as these drugs move earlier, what do you think we may start to see in the long-term as patients are on these drugs for a much longer period of time? Do you anticipate anything different or anything changing over time with these treatments?
1: Yes. So I think that when EV starts to be used in the first-line setting, I think we will be seeing neuropathy as a result of this agent. And we will get more long-term data, as we discussed earlier, when this agent, uh is used in the third line, we we seldom have very long-term data because survival is quite limited and prognosis poor. So we will see uh, how the neuropathy evolves with the passage of time, the extent of recovery that we can expect to see when it's being used in the first line. And this is important because we'll be looking at patients whose survival could be measured in years. And if they develop a neuropathy that is disabling, that would be very uh, significant in terms of quality of life
0: absolutely absolutely and i think the challenge for us when they develop neuropathy is often we may have to dose delay dose reduce and this creates a level of anxiety for patients especially those who've had a great response to treatment so i think it's going to be something that we're really going to need to work together moving forward and just to remind ourselves in terms of treatment related adverse events with the combination peripheral neuropathy came in at around 60.5% or 61% and grade three or greater was about 3%. And if we look at the EV monotherapy group, that was about 55% for any grade. And again, about 2.7% for grade three. So perhaps the good news is that we are not seeing a significant increase in the rates of peripheral neuropathy, either all grades or grade three with the combination regimen compared to the single agent. Would you you agree with that sort of assessment?
1: I I would agree with that. Now, Tembrolizumab, as you know, can cause all sorts of autoimmune reactions, and there is a risk of an autoimmune neuropathy of a sort associated with this drug. So it's good to see that the addition does not cause any exacerbation of the neuropathy. This is not entirely surprising because tembrolizumab does not commonly cause these sorts of side effects. So, so this is these data are good and reassuring.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. As soon as, especially as we're seeing an improvement in the efficacy without a significant worsening of the neuropathy. I think that's important. Of course, there's potential for other overlapping toxicities between these two drugs, such as the skin. But as far as neuropathy is concerned, I think this is quite reassuring. And so when we think about the peripheral neuropathy, I think you'd mentioned already that sensory peripheral neuropathy was more frequent than motor peripheral neuropathy. And if we were to think about drug-based or pharmacological management of these? Any, anything that you commonly go to to help manage the peripheral neuropathy?
1: Yes. Now, there's always a discussion surrounding this because it's long-term use of agents that are prescribed for neuropathic pain. Firstly, we need to discuss expectations. So as I mentioned earlier, if patients have numbness, there's nothing I can do about that. There is no drug that is going to alleviate numbness but certainly paresthesias, dysesthesias, painful sensations, allodynia, these sorts of things can be managed by a number of drugs with varying degrees of efficacy. And patients need to understand that it's usually trial and error. These drugs can be effective. That's why we use them, but not all of them are effective and they're not going to restore complete sensation that needs to be understood from the outset, but it could minimize uh, disturbing and irritating symptoms that could improve sleep. For example, patients often have difficulty sleeping because of neuropathy. The agents that we use commonly are the tricyclic uh, antidepressants you, used for neuropathic pain, such as amitriptyline and nortriptyline. These drugs need to uh, be dosed up. so They do need to be over a period of weeks to months, increased to a therapeutic level. Other agents that we use are Cymbalta. I like to use Symbalta often as a first-line agent. And then there are the other drugs such as gabapentin and, and lyrica um, that are used as as well. And often we have to try these drugs in succession. Patients are not satisfied with the response, and we move on to a, another agent. And then they have side effects and toxicities. That's something people need to understand as well. It is going to interfere sometimes, you know, with with daily functioning. Patients can have you know, drowsiness, constipation. Uh, dryness of the mouth, uh, you know, a bit of slowness of, of, of thinking, those things need to be considered as well as side effects of the drug.
0: Yeah, I think that's important. I think you make a really important point about this issue of managing expectations. I think even for us as treating oncologists to make sure that when we're sending them to you, that we are saying that, you know, there may not be a complete resolution of the neuropathy. And I think that's important for them to go in, with that knowledge that it may not be 100% and it may be a trial and error for sure. One of the things I find that can be helpful from my standpoint is offering patients dose delays. So sometimes I'll delay the treatment, you know, a week or two or more. I find sometimes even dose reducing is helpful because you want to hit that balance between having efficacy, but not making the toxicity so bad that they're not able to do their activities of daily living. And then finally, the other thing that I find sometimes helpful is a low dose of steroids. And that manages not perhaps a neuropathy directly, but sometimes gives them a sense of feeling a little bit better. It can help with some of the skin toxicities that we see with this drug as well. But certainly, I think it's important that we work closely in conjunction with you and, and a little bit of back and forth. So often I'll send a patient to you, they'll get an, a recommendation, they'll come back to me, and then a, maybe a few months later, I will send them back to you. For reassessment or just to make sure that things are good. So I think it's a, it's an ongoing type of process. And I think that's always, always important. And, uh, I think that having, you know, a a good onconeurology or or a good collaboration, I think is ultimately really going to be important to help us to give these drugs over the long term, especially as they're getting moved earlier and earlier in the treatment paradigm. And then the other thing I think that's really important is to make sure that patients know to report these symptoms, because I sometimes have patients who are really, really nervous about reporting what symptoms they have or are having, because they don't want to be taken off the drug, you know, often recognizing they don't have a lot of treatment options left. Do you you run into that issue where there may be underreporting a little bit?
1: Sure. So when the patients come to me, there's always the concern about the need for ongoing uh, oncologic therapy particularly when it's effective. And they also realize that they don't have a lot of options. So it's a very difficult, difficult situation to manage because on on the one hand, you don't want patients to become completely disabled from a neuropathy, but also the alternative is that a cancer is going to become you know, an, essentially untreatable if you begin to withdraw these drugs. And the prognosis is obvious when that is uh, the case. So it's, it is a challenge to... To discuss with a patient how much neuropathy he's willing to live with uh, for, for cancer control. And I'm always concerned about suggesting that a drug be held or discontinued because I know the implications as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it always almost behooves us to go back a little bit and look at whether a de-escalation strategy in some of our drugs does make sense. So perhaps not indefinitely treating them until disease progression, but having some breaks already incorporated. So it's not such an issue for a patient to say, well, you know, I'm going to stay on this despite my neuropathy, but rather, you know, maybe they do a number of cycles, maybe eight cycles, and then have a little bit of a break if disease is stable. Like, I think we really need to work together to try to find the optimal dosing schedule strategy, and of course, the medications that are going to help and support if need be for the neuropathy side of things. And I think that working together will make a difference. Um, How often do you end up referring to physical and occupational therapy, or do patients need mechanical aids like braces? Do you see that requirement very often?
1: Certainly in the grade three neuropathies, that is seen quite often. And something like a footprint can make a big difference in terms of function. So we do try to involve occupational therapists and physiotherapists to the extent that we can. There's also the potential to get a rehabilitation medicine uh, assessment for patients who have uh, significant neuropathies. So these are adjuncts that we use quite frequently as well.
0: Right. I mean, I, I think it's it's really, as we get a number of new agents coming into this space in, in metastatic urothelial carcinoma, a very key and important component is involving a multidisciplinary team As you say, people like yourself, of course, but then of course, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, rehabilitation, just to ensure our patients also have not only efficacy of these drugs, but have toxicity that's well managed and that serves to preserve their quality of life, especially if life expectancy is not that long. I always say the quality is going to be really important. So I think with that, I think, you know, we've kind of covered the topic of uh, neuropathy as it relates to this drug EV. Any final thoughts, anything that you want to add on the topic?
1: Well, I'm interested to see, as EV is used increasingly and also in the frontline setting, just how much toxicity we will see and how many patients really present with severe neuropathies. also interested to see what the long-term prognosis of the neuropathy is when we have patients living years and we can follow them and see what kind of recovery they
0: Absolutely. I I completely agree with you. I think it'll also be really interesting because typically in the metastatic setting, we've treated with a platinum first, then gone to immunotherapy and then gone to EV, that if some of our trials report out and EV moves earlier, how neuropathy may be impacted by doing EV first and then maybe going to a platinum agent second. So does sequence matter will be be an important question. And certainly how long-term patients uh, fair will be an ever important question. And encouragingly, we're seeing our patients live longer and longer. So issues like neuropathy really warrant a solid discussion and solid management. So I am thrilled to have a resource like yourself to work with. And I think, uh, you know, I, I look forward to having this discussion in the future when our outcomes are even better. So thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure working with you and your patients, also.